Thank you, choir. That was so powerful. Turn your Bibles to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 4. Our title actually comes from the proverbial book, Rottenness to the Bones. It's my problem. It's your problem as well, if you're honest. Shakespeare's Othello says it thusly, Oh, beware, my Lord, of jealousy. It is the green-eyed monster which doth mock the meat it feed upon. Oh, beware, my Lord, of jealousy. It is the green-eyed monster which doth mock the meat it feeds upon. Several years ago, two high school girls in California, both well-liked, both talented, both ambitious, both usually the center stage of the social activities around them. They went to cheerleading tryouts together. It started out as a, a friendly rivalry. One was selected, but the other didn't make it. That night, a beast came out of the darkness, and it bit the heart of the loser. She felt poison charged through her system, and her eyes grew dark and blazing. Her hand found a gun. She stalked her prey. And in the morning, the winner was a loser, and the loser was a devil, and the whole community choked in pain. There was shock in the radio announcer's voice the next morning when he reported of the incident of the murder. Most of the, the news stories are about people who are a different lot in life than we are. They are so socially above us that their problems are not our problems. But this was the girl next door jealously killing another girl next door. We saw her on the street. We rolled with her on the bus. We sat next to her at the ball game. She wasn't some strange, cruel, stock creature from a B-level movie. She was our daughter, our sister, our friend. She was ourselves. That's why it was shocking to the community. The shock was more than just belief. The shock brought revelation that someone had finally acted upon the feelings that most of us have, raging envy, insane jealousy. And there is no rivalry more intense than is there sibling rivalry. Brother against brother, sister against sister, sibling against sibling. That's our story today. Sibling rivalry, Cain and Abel. A modern version of the Cain and Abel story is found in the Ladau family. The Ladau family owned the International Rectifier Corporation, a corporation that brought in hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue every year. 
a semiconductor maker, Eric Liddell, decided that taught his boys, Derek and Alex, that when they played on the field, that they were to play to win, even when they were playing against each other. The father thought a little sibling rival, he never hurt anyone, did it? And guess what? Derek and Alexander took the lesson to heart. They became competitors, not just in Little League. They were competitors for life. Derek and Alex were gifted boys, to say the least. They both ranked high in their high school, Beverly Hills High School. Derek graduated from high school at age 16. Alex a little slower at age 18. And that began his obsession with his older brother outdoing him. And Alex said, and I quote, I can't let him get the better of me. That were, those words were his own Admission. But the, the task of keeping up with Derek, the older brother, well, that was tough because he graduated from Princeton summa cum laude at age 20. He had earned a Stanford PhD in physics in two years, but Alex was not to be outdone. He built, built a photoelectric cell at age eight, did his undergraduate degree at Caltech, and, and three years won his PhD in applied physics from Stanford at age 22. They both had their PhDs and their respective fields that began work for their father's company, a company their father had started with his father, an El Segundo-based outfit that started in 1947. The company held 124 U.S. and international patents. In 1976, while still a Ph.D. candidate, the younger son, Alex, came up with a new chip, a chip that would break up electrical currents into smaller, more usable units and did so much more efficiently than the bipolar transistors used at the time. His father was so impressed, he gave the younger son $100,000 to research his project, hired him an extra engineer to manufacture the HexFit chip. They bet the whole company on the HexFit chip. They mortgaged themselves up to the eyeball, and it worked. It was a success. It paid off. And the older brother had to admit, Derek admit, he was impressed with Alex's invention, but but he had envy to the bones. He felt for the first time his little brother had caught up, and not only caught up, maybe it actually crowded him out just a bit from the father's limelight. So a feud started within the company. Alex represented the new product, and Derek represented the old products. And he argued, let's not put all our eggs in the little brother's basket. And, well, they just split the company in two. They were two chiefdoms and warring fiefdoms. And they had double marketing groups and double sales groups and double staffs. And, well, the stock during the time of the war between the modern Cain and Abel fell from $12 to $3. The brothers wouldn't even speak to each other, though they worked for the same company. It wasn't a business problem. It was a sibling rivalry problem. It was an envy problem. 
It was a jealousy problem. So they didn't bring in a business expert. They, they brought in a psychologist, J. Mitchell Perry, who got the boys back on track. And Alex, the younger brother, admitted I had to resolve a lifetime of issues of competing with my smarter, older brother. The stock rose from $3, not only to the $12, but to $44.50 when the brothers were working together. Rivalry, envy, it destroys so much. We don't want anyone to be better than we are at our own game, do we? And every time we hear about his or her success, we turn just a little green with envy. We go through what I call the yes, but phase. Yes, he did that, but when you really think about it, it wasn't the yes, but phase. Envy is so common. The writer of Proverbs says in Proverbs 14:30, envy is rottenness to the bones. Ponder a moment the osteoporosis of this insidious, destructive sin. C.S. Lewis, one of the brightest Christian minds, says it this way, when I hear another admired, this is C.S. Lewis, I can either thank God for what he's accomplished through that person, or I can reduce that person's merit by fault-finding. Similarly, when I hear someone else criticized, I can seek some redeeming factor in them that might excuse or lessen the guilt a bit, or I can enjoy the bad I have heard and hope I will hear worse. The second option, to quote Lewis, the first stop in the process which, if followed to the end, will turn us into devils. In the beginning, we hope that black is just a little blacker when we hear the news about him. And then we find ourselves hoping that gray is black as well. And then we find ourselves, says Lewis, hoping that white is black. And therefore, we see the world completely differently, hoping that all is black. That's the way we see everything. It's the way we see God. It's the way we see our friends. It's the way we see everyone around us. It's the way we begin to see ourselves. And we are forever fixed in a universe of absolute hatred. It's a horrid road to walk down. The road of I hope black is blacker and then I hope gray is black and then I hope white is black. Always looking for some way to tear someone down. Envy is not a gentle emotion. It's not, I want what you have too. It's more aggressive than that. I want what you have, and I don't want you to have it, and I want, I'll take it away from you. If I can't do that, I'll spoil and destroy it for both of us. Envious people live in a perpetual state of anxiety, competitive comparison, focusing on what others around them have and what they themselves lack. You remember seeing it played out in Mozart's life, told from the perspective of Antonio Salieri in the play and in the movie Amadeus. 
Salieri was a, the court musician in Vienna, and he worked hard at his craft. He wrote melodies that were nice and choral pieces that were fine and instrumental works that were good. And he knew that God had blessed him to write this music. And as a young man, he fervently prayed to God, let me make music that will glorify you, O Father. Help me lift the hearts of people to heaven with the music that I write. Let me serve you, O God, through the gift of music. And then came boy wonder. Child prodigy. Young Mozart. He dazzled the crowds playing music as if it were so easy to him. Complex melodies that were dancing from his fingers. The melodies were complex and yet fun at the same time. Songs that soared until they didn't bring people up to heaven. They brought heaven down to earth. But here's the catch. Mozart was such an obvious sinner. He was immature, and he was vulgar, and he was obscene, and he made off with the ladies every chance that he could get. And Salieri grew green with envy. How could life be so unfair? He was a, a servant of God, and why was Mozart blessed with double talents? Salieri continued to live an obedient, pious life, but he couldn't figure it out. How could Mozart traffic in all the worldly pleasures and still get ahead? Salieri had to work, tedious work at his music, and why should it all be so easy for the younger Mozart? The story continues until Mozart dies of some mysterious death. Salieri's eyes gleam with joy at Mozart's death. At the climactic end, Salieri sits in an insane asylum where he now curses God for denying him the kind of talent that God had given to Mozart. Envy lurks on the path of the crushed spirit. Why should my marriage end in divorce when others survive? Why should my business falter in the recession while hers does so well? Why should you be plagued with sickness where that family never seems to be troubled? You remember the two women who came to the wisest man ever to walk on earth? Two women, one baby. They both had babies. One woman's baby died in the night. When they awakened, she had claimed the other baby, the living baby, is hers. And they, they took them to the, the wise man, to Solomon, to solve it. And, and Solomon, being wise, he took his sword and he did like a dotted line, like he was right where he was going to cut the baby in two. And he said, there's two women, there's one baby. I don't know to whom it belongs. I'll cut it in half and give you each a half. Oh, no, 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 said one of the women. That's not my baby. I lied. That's her baby. And the other woman said, no, no, no. You cut it in half. After all, fair is fair. Solomon knew 
the woman who wanted to destroy what the other woman had because she couldn't have it too was the envious one of the woman with the baby. Life isn't fair, is it? Envy was Cain's problem, it's the cheerleader's problem, it's Salieri's problem, it's Alex's problem, it's Howie's problem, and I just got a sneaking suspicion it might be your problem, too. Cain and Abel were brothers. They played together as children. Imagine them. They built forts. They swam together. They carved their initials in the tree together. They had always been racing and competing to see which one was the fastest. They were brothers. They were rivals. They were friends. Adam and Eve taught them how to worship. They told the boys about the good old days when God would come down to the garden and they would just walk and talk with him so naturally, but it wasn't that way anymore. God stayed a little bit away from the garden and and now they had to speak to him with smoke signals, with sacrifices. So they taught the boys how to speak to God, to acknowledge God, to be grateful to God, to give him an offering of their first. Young men both built their altars. They strike up the song of the fire. They send their praise and thanks to God, and then comes the word from heaven. Abel makes the cheerleading team, and Cain is cut from the roster. It's a familiar story. Both of the boys brought their offering to the Lord, and Cain Like his father, Adam was a farmer, so he brought produce to God. Abel was a rancher, so he brought offering, the firstborn of his flock. And the question in our mind and readers is, why is it that God accepted Abel's but refused Cain? And and our mind, we go to mechanics, and it wasn't mechanics. It wasn't that Abel brought the first flock while Cain brought the leftovers. That's not what the text says. In Hebrews 11.4, we finally have the answer. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain. Hebrews 11:4. Through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous, God testifying about his gifts through faith. Though he is dead, Abel still speaks. It wasn't a matter of mechanics. It wasn't a problem of the hands. It was a problem of the heart. It was by faith that Abel came and made his offering. And Cain is outraged. How does God accept the offering of his kid brother and yet refuse his? I kind of have the image in my mind of God's nostrils breathing in Abel's smoke as it rises straight up to heaven and Cain's just kind of smolders on the ground, rejected because there is no faith in the gift. You know the feeling. I know the feeling. It's our problem too. 
Someone else wins, and I'm the loser. That's a jungle where the beast lurks. Gore Vidal said this way, every time a friend succeeds, I die just a little. What about you? Of whom are you envious? You know the author James Missioner, 75 million books. Let me say that again, 75 million books. Maybe you know the titles, The Source, Hawaii, The Covenant, Texas, Poland, to name but a few. And Missioner's style was that he built these in-depth, complex character with deep family lines, genealogies, and lineages. And what was so unusual about that, if you know Missioner's history himself, he was abandoned as a baby. He was raised a foster son of a widowed Quaker woman with the last name of Missioner. James never knew his biological parents, didn't know his family. He had a vacuum in his life when it came to family. So it's interesting that all of his characters, well, they had deep-rooted family lines. The lines that he didn't have or know. Despite his generous spirit and kind nature, missioners' accomplishments were they raised the ire of part of the missioner kin. In a rage of jealousy and mean-spiritedness and sheer nastiness, some anonymous relative self-signed a real missioner felt impelled every time that James Missioner was well, every time he had another bestseller, every time, well, when he won the, the Pulitzer Prize, every time he got any kind of award, this poisonous pinned clan member, the missioner clan, would write a nasty note to James. Who in the heck do you think you are trying to be better than you are? And using a name missioner that's not really even your blood. Final letter received in 1976 after President Ford presented him with the, the Presidential Medal of Freedom. The last letter said, still using a name that isn't yours, still a fraud, still trying to be better than you really are. Missioner testified... Those words always burned in his soul, robbed him of something of the joy of his accomplishments. The nasty letters quit when a certain family member died, so it was pretty easy to tie and trace it back. But Missioner says, he was right in all of his accusations. I have spent my life trying to be better than I was, and I am the brother of, of all who have the same aspirations. We all wish our friends and family a bestseller until they get it. When we feel down about ourselves, it's easier to tolerate hearing about our friend's misfortune than it is to hear about his successes. 
Because your friends are the closest thing to being like you, their successes make you question, what is wrong with me? Nothing alienates people quite like success, does it? When people become successful, they discover a sad and unexpected truth. It's lonely at the top. The friends disappear. Your friends need to celebrate their successes without feeling they're intimidating you. And to share their failures without thinking that maybe you're taking some secret satisfaction in their failures. Can you really allow your friends to confide their successes in you without becoming envious? Maybe the best thing to say is, no one deserved it more than you did. You'll probably be right. And if wrong, you'll certainly at least be a good friend. Envy will possess you and consume you. It will rob you. It will leave you like Salieri and the insane asylum cursing God. There's a great preacher from the 4th century, Basel of Caesarea, said three things real quick about envy. First of all, he said in this 4th century sermon, it will cause you to slander. Envy and slander are cousins. One church, town with three churches, all struggling to survive. One church called a pastor who was extremely gifted. His sermons were relevant and gripping. His personality was, had the loving compassion of Mother Teresa. He had the looks and charisma of Tom Cruise. And people began finding their way to listening to his sermons on Sunday. And that's where the, the problems began. The other two pastors of the other two churches had lunch together and decided that there was no way that God God was in the other preacher's flamboyant lifestyle, and the gospel he preached must be a false gospel. And, well, they weren't sure it was true or not, but they had heard a little rumor about an indiscretion. Well, they didn't stop talking about it, and the rumors spread, and the people began to wonder, and the pastor was shamed, and his family left town, and envy found his mark, and turned two preachers of the truth into liars and gossips. Envy and slander, says Basil of Caesarea, are close friends. Secondly, he said, it robs you of your thankful heart. It robs you of your grateful heart. Those who are envious are always, their eyes are always roving the stalks of everybody else's shelf. You have a home, your home is beautiful, you enjoy your home, you raise your children in it, and that home is a blessing from God until the, the people with the empty lot across the street build a home that is twice as big as yours, and now your house isn't such a blessing anymore, is it? Same house, same Kit Kat bar, but somehow now you see it differently, don't you? Thirdly and finally, the great preacher of the fourth century, Basel, said, Envy gives us a negative focus. Envy gives us a negative focus. We focus on everything with a black spirit. Envious people by nature have a negative disposition. They tend to have a cancer of envy eating away inside of them, and they only focus on the worst in life. Envy 
will make you a slanderer. Maybe it's a tilt of the head. Maybe it's only faint praise. Maybe it's a yeah, she did, but did you know? Secondly, it takes away the joy you had before and what you had. Have you ever noticed that with kids? Everybody is happy until one kid gets something a little bit bigger and a little bit better. And the reality is it happens with 50-year-old kids too, doesn't it? And thirdly, it robs you of a positive life. It turns you into an insane Salieri who doesn't enjoy the gifts that God has given you, but only looks negatively at the gifts God has given others. And in the end, since God is a giver, we'll learn tonight in James 1, since God is a giver of all good gifts, if you're envious, your envy has to be eventually toward God. Envy. It's the problem for the cheerleader when she's cut. It's the problem of the musician when someone makes grander music. It's the problem of the physics PhD when the little brother who's supposed to be not as smart as the big brother invents the hex fit chip. But it's Howie's problem too. And it's your problem And the proverbial writer tells us it is rottenness all the way to the bones. It gives us nothing and robs us of everything, including and eventually our very relationship the one who gave us our good and plentiful gifts. Let us pray. God, everybody in here who has a brother or sister understands the story of Cain and Abel. Everybody who has a cousin understands the story of Cain and Abel. Everyone who has a co-worker, a friend, understands the story of Cain and Abel. So many thousands of years after Cain and Abel, Sin is still lurking at our door, too. God would tell us we must do well. And if we do well, if we fight envy, our countenance will rise. May we rejoice with those around us, O God, with whom you bless with the greatest of gifts, May we always be grateful for whatever gift you have given us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.